Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scalps. And I want my scalps. And all y'all will get me 100 Nazi scalps, taken from the heads of 100 dead Nazis. Or you will die trying. Moves and Tea. I'm your host, Zoe Devil Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co host, Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. Tonight, we continue our Quentin Tarantino season with Inglorious Bastards, Tarantino's World War II slash Men on a Mission film, and a film which he for many years put off um, actually making, be it through too many directors being out there making World War II movies or just his general closeness to the project. Eventually, coming off uh, Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, intending to make a much smaller project, but after having a conversation with Francis Ford Coppola's wife one day about the film projects he had coming up, and he had said to her that he'd got this World War II movie that he was planning to do, but it's kind of a big project, and you know, having just done parts 1 and 2 for Kill Bill, he wasn't really in the looking to do another big project, and she's asked him to go over the script, and he explained the basic plot to her and she just looked at him and said just make it these are your mountain climbing days when you get older you may not want to be climbing these mountains so just go and make it now and with that sort of motivation he set out and finally gave us the wonderful Inglorious Bastards probably one of his more challenging films I have to say is this is a film shot in multiple languages it's got a multi-act structure and very impressive set pieces throughout while borrowing its title from the Enzo Castorales Men on a Mission World War 2 movie Inglorious Bastards obviously with Tarantino spelling his with a slight inflection on the word so it becomes Bastards but opening thoughts on this one, Kim, because this is it's not so much a snack, but a bit of a banquet of a mi- movie, this one is. So what's your opening thoughts on this one? <laughs> Which Tarantino isn't, right? But I mean, at least to me, I feel like Tarantino's movies are pretty full overall. They're pretty like we had an yeah. off air conversation about when he started making long movies. And I'm like, yeah, from the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> save like Reservoir Dogs and everything else was just lengthy. But I mean, *Inglorious Bastards* was uh, was was pretty surprising for me. I thought it was. Uh, I kind of was a little bit worried because it did have a you know two and a half hour runtime, but it's also a lot of fun to watch. I think it also is thanks to a really great cast. I mean, I liked everybody in the cast pretty much, even as ridiculous as some accents ended up being, like for Brad Pitt. Hmm. Um, I think it was like there was so much story, but the story was still rather straightforward. And even though it was in a lot of languages, at least I don't know German, but I thought the French was pretty on point. So that's always, you know, a a good experience to have because, you know, sometimes people claim they're doing this and they think it's a good accent. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. Some people, you know, the director doesn't speak the language or something, then then it's really a free for all then. 
Yeah, certainly the fact that this was shot in multiple languages, I still remember being down Blockbuster and this guy came into the shop and he just like angrily threw the DVD over the counters like and shouted, you fuckers should put subtitles on this, they're all speaking French. And I think that he thought being a Tarantino movie that they'd all speak English. But Tarantino, as we saw with Kill Bill, he likes to say true to his roots, so Japanese characters will speak Japanese and Chinese characters will speak Chinese or Mandarin... Cantonese, I don't know which. Can you correct me here? It's okay. Chinese is the general frame of it. So. I, d- I don't want to be offending you, especially because you're in such close proximity. So <laughs> so the fact that here we have German characters speaking in German and the same with French characters speaking in, in French, it provides a number of complexities when it comes to casting your film and much, certainly much more when it comes to selling a film in multiple languages because, let's face it, not everybody likes to go to the movies to read is the general feeling whenever faced with a subtitle movie and yet somehow Tarantino manages to create a film that works with subtitles and, and still keep a very general audience with this film her feats i would think only really achieved by battle royale being the only other movie i think people who've never done what subtitle movies have seen so it's a real credit to him the fact that he does such lengthy scenes in multiple languages and i think a lot of this has to do with christoph waltz um being cast as the jew hunter who plays such a central role in this story um and as Lander is just this ever-present threat. I mean, here we have an actor who can not only speak English, but German, Italian, and French, making him really the perfect choice for the character Lander, um, a role which originally was going to be played by Leonardo DiCaprio, of all people, which I just don't think he would have had the presence. I think he's too um, too youthful-looking for such a, such a role like Lander involves. Yeah, I mean, for sure, like... This, I think this role really works. Christoph Waltz is a big part of why this movie is so good, I think. Um, Landa yeah. is such a colorful character because from the beginning to the end, you see so many different sides of him. And uh, it's so it's such a... I guess it's something of a... I feel like Tarantino characters sometimes are like that, especially the central ones where they're very... They feel like they're very relaxed, but at the same time, they're also very lethal. So there's this kind of contrast in their characters that work really well. Um, which, which I, honestly, I don't think, like... I mean, I'm not saying Leonardo DiCaprio is not a good actor, but I think in this mm. role, um, maybe even just for the lack of languages, it would probably not carry as well. Definitely so, and I think the fact that because Christoph Waltz is, is obviously multi bilingual or multilingual, should we say, um, it provides such flow to that opening sort of sequence where he is obviously speaking in multiple languages when he's interrogating the dairy farmer, and I think it's an absolutely incredible scene. And Tarantino has gone record as saying it's like one of his favorite scenes he's ever written, and just the te- intensity of that whole sequence how he's like slowly breaking the guy down and he's doing it in a very in a way that is actually very true to interrogation techniques where it's not just about you know continuously beating the person down it's about forming a bond with that person and that's what he's obviously doing here is they he drinks milk and he smokes his stupid 
the pipe, <laughs> which is just so over the top. And the fact that when we get in, he's like obviously asking these questions about this Jewish family that are in the area, which is obviously Shusana's uh, family. And then he like basically says they're under the floor, aren't they? And he's just like this guy's just like realizes that he can't get out of this situation and the fact that Lander continues this conversation like they're having a friendly chat because he knows that they can't understand what they're saying underneath the floorboards and then just sends his guys in just to machine gun the place up it's just an absolutely astonishing sequence and you think how another director would do it they'll probably just have this like big blustering interrogation um like SS officer who would like be going in and just like be full of like this instant threat of violence but Lander's complete opposite he, he's the violence is is always uh there in the background but he ha has this real sort of false facade to him where he just seems like the nicest guy who just does very horrible things and we also get to see Crystal Falsack with uh, Pudding which is always a uh, a great thing when we have the apple strudel scene later and I mean whenever you put Christoph Waltz with dessert it just magic is always on the screen I don't understand why <laughs> You can. It's the same in Carnage. I mean, he's eating um, apple crumble in um, in Carnage, and he's it's fantastic. And again, it's here with Strudel. I just don't know what it is about that man and and dessert that just he puts some of his best performances out when he's given pudding. <laughs> That's good to know. I've never seen Carnage, so I really don't know. I'm I'm actually just like I when I think about it, Christoph Waltz is has shown up on the movies I've seen a lot and yet I never really notice him. Um, okay. Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> it's it's weird. It's, it's funny because he's like sort of turned up like out of the blue to for this film and when they were doing the casting process they're like, oh, can you do the lines in German? And he just does them in German. He's sort of like, what other languages can you speak? And they're like, oh, Italian. And he does all the lines in Italian and then French and English and he's like, where did you come from exactly? And then after Inglis Busters, he just seemed to be everywhere. And not just like playing SS officers, as normally is the way whenever someone does well in the role. That's all they seem to play for like the next four or five movies. But he's just like in just these constantly surprising roles that he just seemed to be everywhere since Inglorious Bastards. So That's true. I mean, we did cover a movie that he was in. Uh, very early in like our first season The Three Musketeers and I can't remember what role it was <laughs> he was um, he was the main villain like, oh the main villain remember. okay okay he was a cardinal yeah yeah, yeah yeah okay 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 right I remember now yeah I remember that movie is a, a long time ago and I don't remember a lot of it so okay yeah <laughs> Um, so obviously from this, this opening scene we see the young Shazana running off to the hills and really sort of sets in motion this alternate plot because I think when we when the way the film was sold we were sort of like we're going to follow these American soldiers it's sort of this men on a mission they're going to be out scalping Nazis and we do obviously get that but we also have this deeper story of Shazana and her plot for revenge so what we secretly, well, we're obviously being sort of World War Two movie. We're also at the same time being sort of Jewish revenge fantasy as well, which is a really interesting concept and something that we've certainly not really seen before in this film. And Tarantino certainly goes to great pains to highlight the number of Jews within his his men on a mission here. I mean, we obviously have uh, Brad Pitt as um, the absolutely bonkers um, Aldo Rain. Mm -hmm. 
who's um, apparently part Apache. So that's where he pays tribute to this by scalping Nazis. Uh, we also have uh, Eli Roth as the Burju, a role that was originally going to be played by Adam Sandler, but unfortunately he was off doing funny people, so oh, thank God. Eli Roth was drafted instead. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, I don't think Eli Roth is a very great actor in general. <laughs> I'm not sure who I'd prefer to watch on screen, but I mean, I'm not a big fan of Adam Sandler either, so... Okay. I'm, I'm okay, you know, I think I think I can deal with it. It's funny in the fact that we think we're going to obviously follow the bastards as they, like, get go on this whole mission, and we sort of, like, have their introduction, then we cut to, like, several months down the line where they're just already created this legacy of havoc that is uh, basically going around, like, scarring Nazis by carving swastikas in their heads and scalping Nazis, and it's this whole idea of you're creating this campaign of fear, and it's kind of interesting when you think of, like, this idea and you think, oh my god, this is, like, so outlandish, but there is a number of, like, units whose whole job was basically to do this, and certainly if you, um, the Christopher Lee was actually part of one of the units, the the you know ungentlemanly warfare, where the whole job was basically just to go around and do these sorts of black ops and terror campaigns over in Germany. And the fact he spoke multiple languages and his parts of his military background are still classified, which is even more interesting. The fact that when John Landis was working with him, he used to constantly ask him, "It's like, it's like, Chris, what did you do in the war?" And he would like shirk off the questions and he like eventually he got to the point where um they were at dinner and he was sort of like tell me what you did in the war and he leans over and he's like oh can you keep a secret and john landis goes yes of course i can and uh leaning just smiles at him and goes so can i and then just left it at that <laughs> so yeah it's i mean when we obviously have this sort of outlandish idea of what the bastards are there were obviously units conducting similar things over there, perhaps not as outlandish as Tarantino likes to present us with here, but with Inglourious Bastards, we're actually presented with the third of the Tarantino worlds, because we've obviously seen Tarantino's so-called real life, which we see in like Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. Then we have his movie world, which is like Kill Bill. So the characters say like Mia Wallace went to the cinema she would go and see the film sort of film she would see would be like Kill Bill or Death Proof and then we have his alternate history worlds where if these characters existed then they could have impacted the historical timeline in this way and this is what we see with this film yeah. and certainly Once Upon a Time in Hollywood how do you find like Tarantino doing historical sort of picture I mean, how does that play to you? Because obviously we see him do, like, the gangster flick and we see him do the grindhouse sort of thing with, like, Kill Bill and Death Proof, so... I mean, each of it has its charm, I think. I mean, who doesn't want to see... Who doesn't want to see an alternate history movie? I mean, <laughs> um... Well, not, basic, general, general people. <laughs> who doesn't want to <laughs> see a... a a movie that, you know, their alternate history is where Hitler gets blown up, right? I'm not a, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't really know, like, I, I, you know, I consider myself a pretty ignorant person. I don't really enjoy reading about war and Hitler and that sort no. of time frame <laughs> um, in, in, in history. So 
I don't know, like, the little details and stuff like that. So, to me, it's not... I I think that the general picture I have, but when I watch something like this, um, you know, Tarantino writes this story that's really fascinating to watch, and you feel this kind of... um, You kind of get a picture of both sides, right? You have, have obviously, mostly it's um, uh, the SS Hans Landa, who's really... Um, the Hitler side of things, right? And where on the other side, you have the Apache resistance, where you have this whole situation going on. And then, obviously, you think that the movie starts off that it's going to be between these two, just like a war would be between, you know, the Americans and, 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 and Nazi. And yet, a third party comes in, and it, it's, it's retaliation, type of type of deal from someone who escaped uh you know the the one time that he didn't you know i guess be as uh, i don't know meticulous and killed because uh, he 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 did want to shoot shoshana and then he you know he just didn't right yeah and that's what caused his dem- that's what caused the demise at the end right <laughs> Yeah, it's basically because he makes that one choice in life. It's it's like when um, the stormtroopers didn't blow up the escape pod in Star Wars. It's sort of like everything can be traced back to this one choice um, in life. It's sort of like if they'd blown that escape pod, then the Empire wouldn't have fallen. In the same way, if he'd shot Sarasana, Hitler wouldn't have been like machine gunned in the face in a blazing <laughs> theater um, inferno. But, you know, at the same time, so- if you think about it, the people who left the the place, Landa and um, and and Aldo, they don't even know about the Shoshana situation because no, no one really knew <laughs> except for the um, the Eli Roth character and and his buddy there that was shoot, that was shooting down and had planted the bomb right, and the bomb still went off. So in the end, it really felt like uh, it was just kind of like an even you know it was kind of masked by the bombing in some ways. It definitely so. I mean, it just sort of all worked out well in the end because the original plot to at the end, obviously, to blow up the theater gets forward pretty early on because they can't fake Italian accents for the life of them. And it just so happens, obviously, at the same time, she's got her own plot to burn all these Nazi high command um, alive at the screening of Nation's Pride, this um, movie that's celebrating this sort of legendary german sniper who supposedly kills like 250 allied soldiers um it's interesting as well in that if you get the dvd you can watch the full nation's pride film that's one of the special features okay which also features uh tarantino doing his cameo in there <laughs> uh we also have harvey Keitel um has a has an uncredited voice cameo in there as well so oh okay okay Okay, so I think I know what voice it is. I was trying to make out who it was. Because <laughs> uh, Samuel Jackson also has an uncredited voice cameo as well as the narrator for explaining why old film stock is flammable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there was another one for uh, Stiglitz, and I think that might be Harvey Keitel then, right? Or was that also for Samuel uh, Samuel Jackson? That's, that was Samuel Jackson as yeah. well. Um, Stiglitz is another <laughs> wonderful character. Um, the fact that the the actor who plays him, uh, Till Schwieger, I mean, obviously, growing up in Germany, and Germany does not have a good 
it does not it has pretty much outlawed any you know anything to do with nazi and they're very much keen not to talk about the war mm. um it's a sense of a great shame over there and the fact that the one point they were they were going to like tear down the concentration camps and they actually had to fight to maintain them as these historical objects um and um he was very reluctant about this idea of putting on you know nazi uniforms but basically as tarantino points out to him the only time you're wearing the uniform you're basically out there stabbing nazis <laughs> and he was he was fine with that that was a great compromise just where is another of those like where did you come from <laughs> sort of actors it's like this amazing uh performance as, as i said he's sort of like this rogue nazi who gets uh taken in by the bastards because uh they're in the nazi killing business and business is good <laughs> yeah we also get a nod to the british because you know we were involved in world war Two, despite what american cinema likes to say it wasn't just the Americans who won the D-Day landing, Spielberg. <laughs> if you just pan the camera a little to the left, you probably would have seen us. But <laughs> it's a sense of much national frustration over here, saving private riders. Um, but yeah, it's nice to see Mike Myers turns up as um, as, as the general. Um, he's such an Anglophile, and his parents were obviously in the British Air Force, so that was one of his appeals for the project. And we also get Michael Fassbender, yeah. who is can speak fluent German as well, so that pays out really well for this whole plot of just having soldiers infiltrate the German ranks. So, but Fassbender, I can never place in this movie. It's sort of like when we talk about the cast in this movie, and it's all like, oh yeah, Michael Fassbender's in it. It's all like the same as saying like when Michael Fassbender's in Three Hundred. It's all like, who is he again? Yeah, no, he's like he's like in there for that one one scene, right? So it's it's kind of hard to place him. Um, but at the same time, I I don't know. I'm I do like Fassbender quite a bit. I think that he's a really good actor. Like he he shows up. I, I don't remember. The first time I watched him was in some indie film. <laughs> what was it? Frank, was it? Uh, no, I watched him in Fish Tank. Okay. Yeah, and then and then at that point, I, I probably had seen him somewhere else. And then at that point, I really thought the role was so well, and it really, like, captured me, like, how good of an actor he was. And then that's when he really, like, came on the radar for me. So I was pretty happy that I was in this film, but I haven't seen a Fassbender movie in so long. <laughs> I don't know. That whole scene was. I think that whole scene was probably one of my favorites of the movie. The whole underground bar scene. Oh, and they're playing the uh, the name game. The name game, and just like the progression of the scene, it feels so fun to watch. Um, like how the dynamic, and then there's like the next group, the next German group is like coming in and then bothering them, and. I think it might be because I really do like Diane Kruger. <laughs> so <laughs> So I really like I really loved her her character, like the the way she acts and the way she talks and I just really like that kind of like she had really had that movie star vibe to her. Uh yes, that, that really that really like came to the, the forefront. I didn't know she was a native speaking German either. Because I get liked her too. I've only seen her in like English-speaking roles. So the fact that um, 
she she can speak fluent German as well just took me completely by surprise. Yeah, she has a bit of an accent when she speaks English. I remembered I saw I my first the first time I saw it was in a National Treasure, I think. And okay. yeah, and I remembered her having an accent and looking it up and I knew she was uh she was from Germany. So that that's so it's not too odd to but it's too odd to see her in this role, but then I mean I always can't seem to place where she is in movies. Um, she always shows up in, like, random movies as well. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it was nice to see her. I, I definitely like like her role a lot. Just like, you know, just the same as, uh, you know, Melanie Laurent. Melanie Laurent does a lot of really interesting films as well. Um, and she's a really good actress, but I, I usually can't seem to place where she is either. I mean, well, this is always the thing when Tarantino, when you look at, like, the Tarantino cast, he's not just, like, going for sort of the flavor of the week. He sort of, like, knows who he wants from just his sort of, like, labyrinth sort of um, film knowledge. Yeah. He just constantly, like, brings in people and, and um, it, it everyone just sort of, sort of slots into place. Uh, which is something that's not a, not a particularly easy easy thing to do, especially when you're working with like some actors who are not particularly well known. Um, you just like look at this film now, and it's all like oh, I can't see anyone else playing this this role. But there's some people who are just like Daniel Bruin. What's your feelings on Daniel Bruin? Because I I just can never get on with his performances. I don't know. I mean, he's okay. I felt the same. Like the way, I felt like his character was kind of a little bit. Maybe one of the boring. more predictable and boring characters, I guess, in that sense, um, of the of the movie, because you you know the trajectory of this type of character, right? And it it seems like he's a nice guy, but then you know, based on what he's done, he's not. And then at the end, it feels like you know he doesn't want to relive doing this, so it seems like he's a little more human. But then at the same time. You know, when he's being rejected, he's like, oh, I don't get rejected type of thing. And uh, gets all violent. And then it's like, his character has kind of like a weird vibe. But then it's kind of how these characters usually are made. Um, mm. He doesn't take rejection well. Yeah. That's the thing. He was so, he's so fucking cloying. Um, he just, he just like, he's so like, just <laughs> take a hint. <laughs> yeah. Um, Although I have to say that when uh, uh, when Diane Kruger's um, strangled, I think it's probably one of the more shocking scenes in a Tarantino movie. Yes, 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 yes. The fact Tarantino is, is Tarantino's hands actually doing the strangling, a point that my wife loves to constantly bring up whenever she's trying to find criticism with my Tarantino obsessions. So <laughs> I think it's between that and the um, the action figure you have for Planet Terror, which was like rapist soldier or something it was branded as like oh for Christ's sake <laughs> it's the sort of things that don't get you a peaceful life because <laughs> you know someone on some board like brings up something completely out of context and it's like all I'm going to hear about is like the next half an hour is me trying to explain what the hell the context of everything is and why it isn't like creepy that Tarantino wanted to shoot it with his hand strangling it because he has a particular way in mind but I want to talk a bit about Shazana's sort of plotline here. I mean, it could be seen as sort of like um, kind of sort of like force the fact that you've got this whole sort of like separate revenge plot going in. But I just found her story just like slotted in perfectly. It was like you had these two really great stories and they just like ran parallel to each other. And the fact that she's hiding her 
true identity and the fact that Londa's in town uh, for this big film screening and that they plan to use her cinema that she's basically been hiding out these last few years in as um, as the host the host cinema for this film um, and the, all the time she's like constantly having to have like these conversations with him and you just have this fear that she's going to get like identified as being this young girl that he let go of those years ago so yeah, for sure. I mean, that's why the the whole strudel eating part is so so fun to watch because it there's this tension that it almost feels like Landa knows it's her by the dialogue yes. and trying to weed it out of her or maybe test the waters to see if it is her. But at the end, it it, it you know we you, it kind of comes to the conclusion that maybe we were thinking a little bit too much because it doesn't seem like he knew or he just didn't care. Um, I don't know, but at the same, you seem to care more about how you serve Shrewdle than anything else in that scene. <laughs> it's sort of like it's like no, no, wait, wait. <laughs> it's like this real precision, and she just wants out of there. She doesn't want to have anything to do with this whole situation yet. Whatever she does, you can't seem to like get away from bloody Nazis in this town. Yeah, and and you know, I, I really like that scene because the moment that Landa is out of of, of the scene. Um, or you know, to a certain extent, she just she just starts break. She just breaks down, <laughs> and, mm. I, and I and I thought that part was so was so was I don't know not funny but kind of funny. <laughs> it's and it's so great. I mean, the fact that she's just how she chooses to deal with like solving this this issue herself. Um, we see her like when she's like putting on the makeup and she's like applies the lipstick to the under eyes like she's applying her war paint this is a, a woman going to war yeah um and it's just such a well thought out plot she makes like the film to like replace the um to replace replace the film in like part through one of the reels so it's like a tyler dead and style sabotage that she pulls on these uh nazi officers um and then you have that really iconic screen of like the film burning up as she's like laughing it's just so great <laughs> yeah although they really underestimated the temperature that the that the theater was going to get to uh when they were shooting the fire scene so that went from it was supposed to be about 700 uh centigrade but it jumped up to about 1200 so the steel cables holding up the um the swastika weren't supposed to like melt they just like gave up and that's why the sign falls down that was not intentional <laughs> so um it was like shooting a blast furnace according to eli roth so it was a little bit of an underestimation <laughs> the special effects guys part there so but it looks awesome it's such a cool scene it is it's a really great way to end the movie too um accident or not but you know the sign falling down was actually pretty pretty yeah. fitting <laughs> Oh yeah, the, the ends were um, we're basically just left with with these two because I mean, it it's hard to say when we look at the bastards, they're not for all their plotting and like propaganda and stuff. They're not the most efficient unit as they seem to like screw up every situation they go into. They lose a number of people um, initially when through the, when they're down in the basement, and then they obviously the whole plan to blow up the theater goes south because you know the unconvincing Italian directors. Um, and then at the end, it's basically just the little man and Aldo, and obviously Land who've uh, captured Lando, 
and they're now being faced with uh, handing him over to the top brass where they feel that he's just going to get away with it which uh, in true Tarantino fashion makes sure that we leave the cinema on a memorable note by carving a swastika in his head and we do also get that great line of how do you get to Carnegie Hall practice <laughs> which is um, one of the it's one of like <laughs> one of the two Tarantino lines from this movie I like to use them they were being um I ain't going to get disciplined. I'm going to get chewed out. And I've been chewed out before, so. But, you know, I think that that's one of the things that Tarantino does really well in the in the sense of how, whenever he writes anything is that what he usually starts with, he ends with. So when we talk about this ta- the start point, obviously the start point is that scene. But when we first get introduced to uh, the, the, the bastards, you you already get the the whole concept of you know how he carves the the uh, swastika signs on their forehead so that even if they're able to take off their uniform they'll never be able to get rid of who they were and the stuff that they've done so in the end when they do it again i kind of had already forgotten about that beginning part and what he would do <laughs> so when he did it it was like oh right you know sort of thing that conversation comes around and you remember that conversation that he had in the beginning with that soldier and i, I just think it's i re- i mean honestly i really really love movies like that that are able to kind of like round up things from the beginning and kind of like give you this um it's like everything comes around type of type of feeling when you watch a movie. Yeah. Definitely so and I think it's just it is it is a proper fitting Tarantino ending. I mean the fact that we just end with with that shot of Lando having this swastika card in his head, it's sort of like you just realise that that he just does not care. <laughs> He's like got his own plan for this war and it, they don't really sort of revolve around what the top brass want. It's just he's got he's set out on this mission and he's going to do things his way regardless because he's the one out on the front line, so Well, I mean, he doesn't really care at this point, right? What's there to care about? The the people who matter have already died, theoretically. So <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> what are they gonna do, you know? Like the mission in general it, it was a success. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the threat was uh, was removed. <laughs> um, in other sort of alternate casting, Maggie Chung was supposed to be in this movie, but uh, sadly her scenes got cut, which I think is an absolute shame because Maggie Chung should be in everything. Um, also with the the soundtrack here, because I mean here Tarantino doesn't sort of like stick to the usual sort of like Edia Piaf and those sort of usual sort of standards and instead like throws in a little like Erico Monacone uh, sort of sounds so he's almost like he's trying to replicate his own spaghetti western but in occupied France um, and we even have like David Bowie's cat people during like the big um, the big sort of um, setup scene for Josanna which I thought was, was um, an interesting choice but uh, what did you think about the soundtrack, Kim? Yeah, no, I mean, the soundtrack is pretty good. I really did like it. Um, obviously, I'm not as, like, well-versed in movie soundtracks as you are. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think that right from the beginning, I think one of the things that really caught me in the beginning was when they kind of had that kind of um, variation of the Furleys. 
Um, okay. And that part, you know, coming because I, you know, I I did play classical music for a good part of my life, so that really like caught me. Uh, I always like to hear people like how people are able to use classical music to um, in in their own way, pretty much in their own interpretation, and that really fit the scene, I believe. Um, but I mean, the the soundtrack I think fits really well. If you were to say like, oh, can I pinpoint a part that I really like? Well, no, I can't. <laughs> My soundtrack knowledge no. isn't that much, and I didn't really do a whole lot of research. But I did think that you know, I it really did complement the film as you are moving through the different um, acts. Uh, it would it would kind of bring a different vibe and a. But then I mean. I always said from the beginning of the Tarantino season that Tarantino's soundtrack, while I don't really go and look for it too much, it is my favorite parts of his movies in general. It does get very ingrained in the public consciousness. It's the same way that we take like elements of it and then you will you find it constantly referenced in popular culture. The soundtracks also tend to make their way into popular culture as well. The fact that we've got... Uh, Battle Royale Honored in Humanity, which then turned up, which is in Kill Bill, mm. and then turns up in every single talent show going. Like every time you watch like American Idol yeah. or Britain's Got Talent and stuff, and they have like the big build up scene where you see the judges come in, and it's always like that uh, piece of music. Yes. Um, and it's not even from a good movie. New Battle Royale Honored in Humanity isn't a particularly good movie, but that song's good. Yeah. Um, and I think Tarantino sort of gave it a second life by including it in Kilbo and having it for the Ori and Ishii entrance. And when it came to Inglorious Bastards, I think this was one of the first soundtracks that I didn't like have because, it's, as I say, it's a lot of sort of instrumental pieces and it's not got that sort of in your car sort of um, appeal to it. It's not like like Kill Bill or Death Proof, those sort of like you got those recognizable sort of tracks in it. I don't. I don't particularly go for like instrumental, um, an orchestra and like uh, instrumental sort of soundtracks. I've never been a big fan because without having, you know, the images to go with, often it doesn't have any sort of relation to anything. It's just feels sort of like background music. Yeah. Um, but this was actually the first soundtrack they released with no actual dialogue from the film. All the other films have little snippets of dialogue in there, so. But uh, yeah, with this one, there's no dialogue at all. <laughs> I just a shame really because there's, there's a number of great quotable sequences. It'd be handy to have those little sound bites for, but instead you've got to go and get creative on the internet to find those. So, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, good and bad, right? Either way, <laughs> bad if you're the one editing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you want some info to watch, though, I mean, obviously go and check out the original version of Inglorious Bastards. The director himself actually turns up in um, as one of the German officers in the theater sequence in the cameo role. And Bo Stevenson um, also shows up as an American officer in the um, in the in the gem in the propaganda film as well. So. It's fun that you have a couple of the characters obviously uh, show up there. Sadly, no Fred Williamson, as that would have been awesome. But there was actually supposed to be a follow-up to this one um, called uh, Black Crow, which would have followed Samuel Jackson leading a group of um, convict GIs on a men on a mission. So it would have been an all-black unit um, going off and doing similar things to the bastard. But sadly, like many Tarantino projects that he 
has grand ideas for it. It's uh, yet to fail to materialise, and I don't think it's on the horizon. Much like Kill Bill Volume 3, which he still continues to taunt us with. <laughs> yeah. I, I, had a no, I had another plotline for it the other day, and it was like Sophie Loren uh, was... Uh, sorry, so, uh, Sophie, the Oren Ishii's sort of like right in command, she was going to inherit Oren Ishii's fortune and Bill's fortune, and she was going to train... Um, the uh, the little girl to be to go and take a revenge on the bride. So, right, it was like, oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> but then any any time you mention anything to do with Kill Bill, I'm excited because I love Kill Bill. So, it's one of those films that just let me wanting more. It's like, yeah, give me more Kill Bill Volume One, but a little less Volume Two. <laughs> yeah, you know, thinking talking about further viewing, I haven't seen the movie, but just from like the trailers and stuff that I've seen, I know you've seen it. Uh, would you think that Jojo Rabbit would be a good further viewing as well? Jojo Rabbit is phenomenal viewing. Um, it's currently in my top, top like five. In my top five first time watches for this year, Jojo Rabbit is right up there. And a great movie to pair Jojo Rabbit up with is obviously um, the Italian film Life Is Beautiful. And both those movies, I think, are very similar in many ways, in the fact that it's this idea of someone being protected in many ways from the horrors of, of the war happening around them and, but shown from two very obviously different perspectives obviously with Jojo Rabbit it's the focus on this character Jojo who's in the Nazi youth and at the same time doesn't realise the the indoctrination or the what he's being told about you know the Jews and all this propaganda is being fed from this young age what it actually means so I think it's just a phenomenal phenomenal movie and features one of Scott Johansson's best performances but I would say it's it's an interesting film to pair with this um so yeah that, that would be such a weird I, I don't know if it would work or not because part of me thinks that it does and a second time it's sort of like I'm not sure <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Go go watch Jojo Rabbit with Inglourious Bastards and let me know how you feel at the end of it. It's like, which one do you watch first, though? And it's like, wow. <laughs> That's going to really... I feel like the... Just from like the basic setting. Like I said, I haven't seen the movie, right? But the basic appearance of the movie and the setting feels like it would be a yeah. good pairing. But then, like I said, I don't really know the plot too well. So, um, I don't know. That's why I asked you. It just came to my mind just now. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. In it, in many ways, I could see the two working well together. Um, I mean, that's another example of like a really nice guy. I mean, you're Stephen Merchant playing an absolutely terrifying SS officer, hmm. and it's sort of like this, like when you see. Um, Michael Palin in Brazil playing the head of interrogation. It's sort of like here, like with Lander, we've got who, someone who could be like the nicest guy in the world who does just very bad things. Um, so yeah, I'm going to say yes, yes. Pair those two things together, and for whatever you do, do not watch the boy with the striped pajamas as I watched the other night. Oh, because I was told that was like JoJo, and it's like no, 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 it's not. Isn't that like supposed to be like? I really want to watch it, but I heard it's like super tough to watch. So I've been is. I've been putting it off because I I just don't think I'm in that emotional capacity for it right now. <laughs> yeah, it just um, yeah, the ending is 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 tough. 
Right, we'll talk about that more in off air in a minute, but because yeah. <laughs> this obviously is turned into trauma cast. <laughs> but um, that brings us into tonight's episode. Thank you as always for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And you can also check out our blog, which is moosintpodcast.wordpress.com. Is it podcast or blog? WordPress podcast. Uh, the podcast, movies and tea podcast. WordPress.com. Yeah, that's okay. Great. You got it right for a change. Uh, well, you can find our full archive episodes. We've got some reviews on there. And every Friday, myself and Kim both take and pick a film to put together into our fun double feature that is the Friday Film Club. Sometimes there's a theme, sometimes there's not. Either way, it's a chance for us to discuss more of the movies that we love. And, um,. Yeah, thank you um, again for listening. Kim, where are we going to next on our Tarantino filmography? Oh boy, next time do we have a big episode. <laughs> We're going yeah. with, um, I would say, a Western double feature. Is that, is that yep. what you call it? Uh, with um, Django Unchained and uh, 2012's Django Unchained and 2015's The Hateful Eight. Watching them back to back. Oh, six hours of it. So that will be fun. Um, so make sure you join us for that. I think we're going to have some opinions, to say the least, on one of those movies, to say the least. So uh, make sure you join us for that. But thank you again for listening. Thank you to my co-host Kim. And we will be back next time with our Western Tarantino double feature with Django Unchained and The Hateful Wait. But until then, good night. <laughs>